Hey guys, it's Mom Taraj, the podcast about being a mom that thinks that most mom stuff is super boring. So we created our own posse. I'm Ashley. And I'm Carrie. And we are ready to walk you down the red carpet of motherhood. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mom to Rush podcast. Happy Wednesday. I'm Carrie. And I am Ashley. Guys, we have such a good show today that it's supersized and it's going to be two episodes. <laughs> That's my air horn, Sam, because we in the club. That's right. In the club. All up in the club. I just want to tell you all that you know how I'm very full of myself. My birthday is going to be on one of these double episodes. So my birthday episode will be pushed past my birthday because it would be really annoying for us to split up an episode and make you put a different episode in between. That would be annoying. I love how you're telling people like they were keeping track of when your birthday is. Oh, they are. Anyway, guys, we've got a really great show for you. We have part one of an awesome interview with a New Jersey native actor, comedian, dad, mental health advocate, Chris Gethard. And it's really a great conversation. Conversation. We had so much fun talking to him. We're excited for you to hear it. I feel like he's my best friend and he's not, but I feel like it. That's how good the interview was. I was Chris Gethard's muse when he did Uncatom. That joke is so outdated. It was like hot a week ago. It's still hot to me because it's so ridiculous and I find her so annoying and ridiculous. And Matt's always like, can you imagine being Josh Safdie's wife and like this girl? I have no idea if Josh Safdie's married, straight, whatever. I haven't even thought about it. Matt was like, wouldn't you lose your shit if you were Josh Safdie's wife? And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, I would. You're right. Guys, this is basically our tits and shits. Next up, take it away, child. Tits and shits. Ashley, do you want to tell that story for your tits and shits? Sure, why not? Because, you know, it feels like the world's crumbling around us again. So I'm just going to focus on fun bullshit that's inconsequential to all of us. She was on some red carpet. I saw some interview where she was on some red carpet. And she said something talking about the breakup. And I guess she said that, like, the relationship was, like, totally just for publicity like most of it there were some real feelings but most of it was for publicity and my response to that is no shit but also ew listen I would have done it wouldn't you yes would you not have dated Kanye maybe not current Kanye but wouldn't you have dated somebody who's very much in the public eye for just being opportunistic because I certainly would have I do think I would but also I might not tell people that I kind of like it I don't know I just might not talk about it so much. She's not coming off good to me. Probably most people agree with you, but you know how I'm so weird and always looking at like the PR aspect of things? Yeah. Just like you missed your calling not being in advertising. I think I missed my calling by not being a publicist. I think so too. I would have been a great like Olivia Pope crisis management strategist to the stars. I don't know. For me, I'm kind of torn because on one hand, it's like I appreciate that she's being honest, but also I don't know that most people want that level of honesty. I think that if she had asked acted differently about all the other things, I'd be okay with the honesty because you know I love an honest right. situation. I'm the queen of that. Right. But I don't like her at all. She's not likable. She's not likable. To be completely honest, she's not a very likable girl, but I'm trying to keep an open mind because in my mind, the only crime she's committed is just being obnoxious. There have been some fashion crimes, definitely. Oh, there's been 
a lot of fashion crimes, but she hasn't like done anything bad. And also like, where was her kid in all of that? That's the thing I always look for is these people who go on and on about being parents and then you never see them with their kids. Where was your kid? Right. Where was he? I don't think she's giving us and the world anything in particular. Happy International Women's Day! One of the things I always wonder about is when somebody has like a really huge opportunity like Uncut Joms, what happens that they don't leverage it into something else? And it could be a plethora of things, right? Like no one was willing to take the opportunity to cast them on something. Like you look at somebody like Sydney Sweeney, star of Euphoria, who's in literally everything now. She's like America's golden girl. And you wonder like why somebody can hit gold like that and then not hit gold in a Julia Fox way. But I wonder those things all the time. And for me, it's like either you piss somebody off because we all know that that's a big part of it or you're unlikable or, you know, there is the off chance that you just struck out. Like it just didn't work out for you. Anyway, my real life tits and shits are, well, I'm trying not to think about nuclear war. And I think that's all I've got. Yeah. All I've got is I'm trying to keep my mental health in check and stay healthy as possible mentally more than anything else because there were a few days last week where I was just on the brink of absolute depression and fear and anxiety. And Matt and I both, we were just in this funk. And then Matt went and took a shower and put on a different kind of outfit than he usually does. And he's like, this is it. This is the vibe change. I'm doing a vibe change. (laughs) And I was like, all right, I'm going to follow suit. And you know what? That day we got like two random checks in the mail, checks we weren't expecting. Today, I found a $5 bill outside side of my house, which Matt and I have a long history of when we find money on the street, we call that us vortexing. That means like shit's going well. So we've talked about it on the show before. Yeah. So whenever we find money on the street, I mean, I found a hundred dollar bill once and that was like ultimate vortex. Me too. On the beach. Yeah. But like $5 right in front of my house. I'll take it. That's great. I'll take that vortex. So I'm just trying to focus. I'm not trying to be braggadocious or anything. I am just trying to focus on things that don't make me scared to live in this world and wonder why I birthed a child who also has to now live in this world. Mm-hmm. But anyway, things are okay personally. <laughs> My and shits are mostly shits in that I am where you were at and I'm fully there. I'm fully in a, a shit ditch spiral of vibe check. You gotta change the vibe, man. Buying preparedness things for nuclear war. I also am an infectious disease specialist in that I currently have a yeast infection, a staph infection, <laughs> and a sinus infection. Do you get to call yourself an infectious disease <laughs> expert just because you're patient zero? I'm right now. Beep, 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 beep. Anyway, guys, you know who knows a lot about depression? Our next guest, Chris Gethard. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Today's guest is a man of many hats. He's a dad, a comedian, an actor you've seen in a million things, including the amazingly fun documentary centered in our home state, Class Action Park, the host of podcasts Beautiful Anonymous and New Jersey is the World, and author of many books, including the new Dad on Pills, Fatherhood and Mental Illness, out now. Welcome, Chris Gethard. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi. Did I do it right this time? Gethard. Yeah, you nailed it. That was great. I'm definitely not the person to ask to do this. I have mentioned it many times on the show, but one time we were doing the red carpet and I was triggered terribly by, what's his name? Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins made fun of me horribly for mispronouncing a chemical name. A very complex chemical name. And now I will no longer say any hard words. Wait, Tim Robbins like from Shawshank Redemption? Yeah. That guy made fun of you? Yeah. Real bad. That doesn't feel good. Real bad. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. Now I just don't say words. I just have stopped saying hard words. Got it. I also get the sense that Tim Robbins doesn't make a lot of things feel good. No. In general. Anyway, you, Chris, are a man of many, many talents. Can you give us a rundown of all the zillions of things you do? What does it say on your special skills on your resume? That's the first part. I love that you listed dad and comedian as my first two credits because those are kind of the two that I stand by the hardest these days. Oh, good. Dad now trumps everything. Comedy is kind of the broad umbrella, but I think a lot of comedy fans would say I've always sort of done some confounding stuff in terms of like fitting into a box. So I used to host a TV show that started out as a public access show. My podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, is not always funny, but it all kind of generally lands under the range of comedy. So I do a lot of writing, performing, and acting as well as on The Office and Broad City and some other shows in these small parts. So My favorite. I kind of do a lot of stuff. I think if I was able to say like, here's what I do in a succinct way, my career would probably be a lot better. <laughs> and I think I'd be more of a mainstream entity after two decades of doing it. But I'm just kind of somebody who works under the broad umbrella of comedy and then does a lot of writing and performing and figuring stuff out. Always just sort of whatever feels most interesting at the time and stuff that feels personal to me and kind of comes from a place of caring about it. As someone who has suffered from anxiety and depression her entire life, dad's a therapist, so why not just, you know, have that? I relate very much to this idea of doing a lot of different things. I mean, I think that in the beginning of my therapy journey, which was 35, 40 years ago, I realized that I was doing a lot of these things to run away from dealing with the feelings that I was having. And now I've dealt with the feelings I'm having, but I still just like to be that productive. You know, for me, it's like when I feel these things, we are all on the same bus here with anxiety and all of that. For me, with doing all of these things, it's almost like a way to harness this creativity and these feelings into a project almost. Is that kind of what it is for you? I mean, you just seem so creative to me. I think on its best days, me being a creative person has been that, has been taking energy that probably would wind up being mania mm -hmm. and directing it towards something productive where it's not just like out of control and it gives my life some guideposts. On its worst days, I'm probably chasing dopamine rushes. I'm probably chasing external validation, all these other things that tie into the negative side mm -hmm. of my mental health. I actually started doing comedy in New York like a solid two to three years before I started therapy. And I can look back on that stretch and realize, oh, I thought that creative achievement was going to solve a lot of my problems. It turned out it did not, and that's not what it's for. It also sometimes worsens it. I had that experience. Oh, yeah. My thing where I reached all the goals I wanted to in my acting career, and I was like, I'm more depressed than ever. And now I'm depressed extra because I thought this was going to fix it, and it obviously didn't. Well, like when I was like 19, 20 years old, and I'd take the train from New Brunswick up to Manhattan, and I'd get on a stage, and I'd crush, and I'd feel like I had like a superpower. Then I'd go back to Rutgers, and it was like the high of going on stage 
stage in Manhattan and actually surviving and at times thriving would feel so good and like such this adrenaline rush. And then I'd go back to New Brunswick and nobody would know I had done that. And I'd feel even more depressed. The highs were getting higher, but that meant the lows were getting lower. Yeah. It took me a few years to realize that that was a very, very dangerous game to play. That like chasing high, you can't always live in the high. And like you said, like you set these major goals for yourself. And I know that feeling really well where you go, I always figured if I got blank, I would feel validated. And that internal chatter of not being good enough would go away. Those feelings of just waking up feeling horrible. I'd go, oh, someday if you can wind up on a TV show, then you won't feel so bad about yourself. And then what happens when you're on the TV show and you feel even worse about yourself? You're like, what the fuck now? Jesus. Yeah. I know. It's like at some point, I think I might just need to admit that I'm a little broken internally. Yeah. None of the external stuff is going to fix that. Judging by what you're saying and the fact that I had this conversation with my therapist last week, I would go ahead and say, you are a man who has been through therapy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was aware that I probably needed therapy far back as 12, 13 years old. I was born in 1980s, so I was still of a generation where you hid that and you tried to be tough and you tried to fight through it and went through all of high school and college sort of desperately avoiding it with problems really mounting and then finally got into therapy. I believe I was 22, 23. I turned 42 this year, so it's been a major factor for half of my life. I also went to Rutgers, class of 2000, upstream, downstream. Oh, I was too. We were there at the same time. I was at Mason Gross, so no one saw me because I was doing that weird thing with a school of 20 people. See, whereas I was one of the artistic kids who didn't have the confidence to even try for Mason Gross. The first place I ever did comedy was I was in an improv group at the Cabaret Theater. Of course. Yeah. Nice. And I was going to ask you, what is your grease truck order? Oh, well, they've since changed the name of mine. Now it's called the Fat Beach. But you might remember the old school name for a female dog. And the school finally stepped in and said, we're not letting you have a sandwich for drunken teenagers in a parking lot shouting that word. Oh, the fat bitch, please. They had a sandwich called the fat bitch. Not only that, if you wanted it with extra mayonnaise, you could actually order a fat bitch with extra pussy juice. That was a oh, thing that was okay. Oh my god. How do I not fat know bitch, about no this? rabbit food, extra pussy juice. I like the fat cocoa with modifications. In case you don't remember, mozzarella sticks, falafel, chicken fingers, and french fries in a sandwich. The fat bitch, I think, was cheesesteak, chicken fingers, Fingers, mozzarella sticks, and fries all on one sandwich. Holy shit, that sounds good, though. No wonder it's called, I mean, honestly, no wonder it's called the fat bitch. Also, $4. Yes, it was like $4. It's amazing. And then I would take myself to Thomas Sweets to get a blend in. Oh, well done. And then maybe get a lasagna bowl if it was daytime when I was doing this at, whatchamacallit, the bully place. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if we crossed paths, because I'll tell you, you will totally understand a lot of my crisis years, because you were right there. I was. So New Brunswick. I was in Tinsley while you were at Demarest. I was at Campbell. I was a River dorm person. Then I lived off campus. Those are windy, those river dorms. Yes, they were. I was on Hamilton Street, Somerset Street, then Hartwell Street. Where I was basically at was like, came from North Jersey, came from a blue collar family, supportive family, but kind of knew I wanted to be an artist, but didn't feel possible. You know, it was at the state school and just spent a lot of time doubting myself and a lot of time hiding the depression. And I wish I had the guts to have just auditioned for Mason Gross or to just have gone and like signed up at Demarest where all the weirdo freaky artist kids lived. But yeah, I was just kind of Demarest had the best drugs. You could always get the best drugs at Demarest. So good. 
And there were always rumors of orgies and whatnot happening there. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I was just kind of like, that doesn't seem possible to me. That's not really the family I come from. It's not really the neighborhood I come from. And just kind of fell into a lot of depression and drinking. New Brunswick also now, like, they fixed that town up a lot. But when we were there, too, it was just kind of trash. A lot of construction. And it was also a school with 40,000 people. So to be that kid, it was a place where if you wanted to just be depressed and hide it, it was very easy to get lost in the cracks. I read an article. My aunt was the dean of student life and then the vice president of the entire university later, also while we were there. Oh, wow. She sent me an article one time that said that New Brunswick specifically is in this like dip where it always rains. There's like a weather system, which also explains why that makes my sense. seasonal depression was just constant. It was really bad. It was a really bad time for me. For a long time, I kind of blamed the college. Now I sit here and go, I had gotten into other schools when I was like, I'm just going to go to Rutgers. My parents were shocked. I had gotten into some smaller schools that would have been more accommodating, I think, for a person like me. And I look back, that was a cry for help. And then I really phoned it in and the school did me no favors. I was very much like a lost kid. I did at one point reach out to like one of my RAs for help and she really didn't know what to do. Kind of brushed it off. I hope you didn't go to therapy because I went to the free therapy once and I have gone to therapy before that too. So I kind of knew what to expect. During my intake, the doctor cried and I was like, I can't go to you. That's that's fucked up. He was like, I feel so bad. I was like, I'm not going to come to you again. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I went once and got to the lobby and asked them if like, is this where the therapy thing is? And they said, yeah. And then I turned around and I left. And then it would be, I think, three or four more years before I tried therapy again. So kind of chickened out, kind of bailed. But again, I'm like- I'm glad you didn't go because it turned me off to therapy for a good like 10 years until I got into the city. I would like to meet a person who went to their free college therapy and felt good about it. Right in if you've gone, please. Yeah. I went once in Manhattan and it was the same thing. I was just like, this does not work for me. I think schools have had to take it a lot more seriously. And weirdly, I'm connected to two big reasons why. One is, I think, the Tyler Clemente suicide, the Rutgers student. Yep. They changed a lot when kids started reporting stuff or kids started dealing with stuff. I think they had to. And then very, very sadly, there was a girl named Elizabeth Shin who committed suicide at MIT. And she was actually a high school classmate of mine. Whoa. And a lot of schools changed their rules around suicide reporting and taking kids seriously. And a lot of them were after those cases. So you look back at it and you realize, oh, our generation was bubbling over with the mental health stuff and was no longer willing to just swallow it or drink it down or pretend it was something else. Or had tried all that and none of that worked and now we're up in the ante. Yeah. It either wasn't working for us anymore or we were seeing so many of our friends end in disaster. Like I'm sure being from North Jersey and of similar age, I have too many friends who came from pretty solid backgrounds who fell into opiates, who died from overdoses. That was also all over our generation. We had four in my high school. I went to a private Catholic school and we had four either overdoses, suicides in high school, not even yet going to college. Wow. And then afterwards, more that were in my class, but like actually while I was in school, like I went to my reunion and the list of kids who had passed was like a lot. You look back and you realize it makes sense to me that people of our age were the ones who finally were like, we're just going to start talking about how fucked up we are. Yeah. It is now, I write about it in the new book. Like I remember when I was in elementary school, school, there was a kid a grade below me and we all found out he was seeing a shrink and he was made fun of for it. That's horrible. Yeah. I mean, that's the time. I know. That was how it was back then. It was a weakness thing.
think yep. now no one blinks an eye if the first time you meet someone you're going, oh, I've been on Depakote. How do you like your Depakote? I have side effects. Like that's just get to know you conversation now. And that's a massive improvement. Mm. I think a lot of it is because our generation, when we hit our 20s, I think a lot of us were going, this is fucked up. I see too many people becoming alcoholics. I see too many kids dying because they're falling into drugs that are way harder than you'd expect from kids like that. When someone who was in my marching band section is on the cover of the New York Times magazine for a brutal suicide, mm-hmm. the Elizabeth Shin case, you'll sit there, you go, holy shit. Like a lot of people are probably going, I remember that. Yeah. I played gong in the marching band and she played the vibraphone next to me. Like I'm not sitting here trying to claim we were the tightest of friends, but it's just surrounded by this shit. And I finally started getting help. And then as a comedian, I started really talking about it publicly, which felt really notable for a number of years. Now I'm glad to say I put out an HBO special in 2017 that was all about this stuff. And it got a lot of press because I think a lot of people were like, whoa, this guy's really going there. Now, even five years later, I don't know that the stuff I talked about feels like it would have gotten as much press. And I think that's a really, really good thing. Because even in the last half decade, I think that people are just going like, what can we do to tear down the idea that you need to hide mental illness, that you need to be ashamed of it, that it's stigmatized? It's one of the better social improvements, I think. Absolutely. From my childhood till now. And I think you really get like being who I was in that town, in that era, it felt like I was in a goddamn pressure cooker. Did me no favors. When I saw Class Action Park, I was like, well, this person has lived the exact same life that I have lived. (laughs) Where in Jersey did you guys grow up? I grew up in South Jersey, Margate. It's like a really small town by the beach by Atlantic City. We got a f- Oh yeah, down near Lucy the Elephant, right? My uncle is the museum curator of Lucy the Elephant. Get the hell out of here. I've always wanted to spend the night in that elephant. They're doing that every once in a while. They don't let people do that all anymore, right? No, they were going to Airbnb it and then something weird happened. They never did it. You can still look out her window asshole, which is my favorite part. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> What a beautiful thing. I can give you a tour. Next time you're in town, I will give Please. you a private tour of Lucy. And my childhood that. home, which we still have, which people are still living in, is like three blocks from there. Then I went to college at Rutgers, and then I moved to the city. And then I was 20 plus years in the city. I'm 43, going to be 44, so a little bit older. I just moved to Montclair during the pandemic because, you know, I got the kid, I got the man, I got the house. Listen, moving from the city to Montclair during the pandemic was a very trendy thing to do. We were trying to do it before. <laughs> we tried before, but our house came through. Oh, stop it, Carrie. We bought our house just before the pandemic. January yes. of 2020. Oh, the two of you. Way before it was trendy. Ashley was born. Yeah, I was born in Miami. My mom was originally from here and we moved when I was 10. So for me, all my formative years have been spent here. And I grew up in Hoboken. I now am in Union City. My parents lived in Weehawk and just sold their house after like 20, 25 years. Oh, so you will get in my HBO special. I, one of the things I talk about is that I once spent tonight having a panic attack thinking about jumping off the cliff in Weehawken. So I'm glad you didn't. Beautiful view. Best view of the city you'll ever find up there. Is it right where Hamilton was shot? Oh, Boulevard East, baby. Yes, Boulevard yep. East. If you're gonna jump off a cliff, you might as well have a view like that. Right by the Ardley Soap Factory. Five blocks from me. Some of my worst years right after Rutgers, I moved to Weehawk in Union City where I didn't know Ashley then, no. but literally the house that I moved into is blocks away from where Ashley now lives. Well, I was going to say like Union City is that miraculous town where it's like you can get the best Cuban food yes, sir. anywhere outside of South Florida. I'm half Cuban, which would explain a lot. And also the mayor is like an Irish guy who gets 99% of the vote, right? Yes. Stack is pretty incredible. He gets a lot of shit done, you know, a few days before things 
Thanksgiving, people come knocking on your door, door to door, give you a free turkey. Because a lot of people here are low income. You know, a lot of times there's 15 people living in a house. And he really does a lot to take care of the people. And they thank him by putting huge posters of his face. If you ever drive around around election time, you will see his face in basically every window. So I love how hard Jersey goes. Jersey goes so hard. In everything. And they don't hide it. My New Jersey is the World podcast. I interviewed Matt Friedman, who's the New Jersey reporter at Politico, and he was explaining like there's all these little democratic machines all over the state, and Union City is its own democratic machine to stack as the mayor and state rep. He's like, yeah, like it's a good example of how they're not always bad. Like he gets so much done for his constituents, and then in return, they vote him in with numbers that you honestly only see elections that were like Saddam Hussein's rigged election. Like he gets numbers so high that only dictators rigging elections have ever gotten numbers close to Brian Stack in Union City. I don't even know how people run against him. So we live across the street from a school. Pre-COVID, they would do a lot of things at the school, a lot of town meetings, stuff like that. They always block my driveway. Cops, officials, they always block my driveway. And one day, my husband's getting all pissed off, and he's like, who's blocking my driveway? And out walks Stack, and he looks at my husband through the window and smiles, and my husband turns around and goes, Brian Stack just waved at me. He just waved at me. He's like the biggest fish in the pond that... That is Union City. Yes. And he sends out a Christmas card every Christmas. It's him and his wife, who is Latina, and they're two fluffy small dogs. And inside they say, love Brian, his wife, and then the two dogs. It brings me so much joy. I hate Christmas cards, but it brings me so much joy. It is wonderful. I did not anticipate talking about the machine politics of Union City, New Jersey, but I love that we are. This is how we are at Montourage. Yeah. We have a set of questions, and then it goes to ghosts, it goes to yes. the political machine. It really goes everywhere. I used to work at Weird New Jersey Magazine. I could talk about ghosts all night long. We have to talk about that. If you ever want to come to Union City and go on like Cuban food tour, Cuban sandwich tour, I will take you. Although I will tell you the best croqueta is in Hoboken at La Isla. They make the best croquette. I feel like you could get yourself killed saying that in Union City. (laughs) I'll go. I'll go with anyone. I will tussle. Okay. Because I've had all the croqueta and that is the best one. She's going to put her three name initial ring on like every good Jersey girl put her hair back and then punch the people hold my baby hold my baby I actually got into a fight with somebody in high school in Hoboken who brought a baby and said hold my baby it was a sight to see Chris where are you from in New Jersey originally I grew up in the down the hill section of West Orange okay so anybody who knows Essex County knows the oranges yeah I grew up in like an Irish Catholic section of West Orange hashtag swag bag Okay, guys, hashtag swag bag. I just want to shout out, literally, I feel like Chris Gethart is our best friend. So I just want to shout out his two podcasts, which are going to be my swag bag because- Both of our swag bags. He is just a joy. Truly. Truly. And Chris, if you listen to this, be your friend. Bring your wife in. We'll bring our husbands in so that it's not weird. We're not doing all- uh... I mean, that already sounds weird. Like we're at a key exchange party. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like that way it's not like I was Josh Safdie's muse. Instead, it's just like, we're- all friends and we're all hanging and chilling and being cool. That's right. And getting some Taylor ham. One of his podcasts, I'll do one, you'll do the other. Beautiful Anonymous. I have been listening to this podcast actually for a long time. It's just these- That's where he tweets out the phone number, right? Yes. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. It's just beautiful stories from anonymous people. It's amazing. Like I said, we feel like he's our friend and that's the kind of host he is. He just draws you in. You feel like you're listening to your friend. And I'm going to shout out his other podcast, New Jersey is the World, where they just talk about New Jersey. And I think it's 
it's super fun being a Jersey girl. Obviously, if you've listened, you know that we go on and on about New Jersey because New Jersey is the world. That's right. Check it out, guys. Have a great week. Bye. Okay, that's our show today, folks. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe or follow. We are out here on our own, and these things really, really matter. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear. Email us at hello at momtouragepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, all at Momtourage Podcast to hang out with us all week long. We are here for you. You are not alone. We got you. So go ahead, girl. Know this posse is behind you and go slay. Momtourage is a Cafe Mom podcast written and produced by Ashley Heron-Smith and Carrie Sotero. Recorded and mixed by Lee Mars. Our theme song, MILF, is by the band Mama Drama. You can find them on Instagram at mamadramaband or mamadramaband.com. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.